Thank you. If you have your Bibles this morning, please open them up to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 and 8 is our text this morning. We're going to conclude a very, very many, very two-part, small two-part series that's encapsulated in the larger series that's, because, that's called the Becoming a People of Prayer. Let me ask you, how much do you know about praying? How much do you really know about praying? You know, one little three-year-old was praying before bedtime, and she said this prayer, Our Father, who does art in heaven, herald be his name. Amen. Now, how much do you really know about praying? You know, we're in a series that's called Becoming a People of Prayer. And we saw that in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus does not castigate the Jewish people in their praying. He elevates them. He shows us the people of the Jewish people are a praying people. They were a people whose utmost priority was prayer, but something had gotten distorted. And when he was teaching his disciples how to pray, he took this wonderful heritage of the Jews, which had become distorted, and he restores it, and he makes it even greater. And the way he does this is by revealing the tendencies that we all have. This isn't just for the Jews. We all have these tendencies to corrupt prayer. And Jesus shows us its intended divine purpose, the the real purpose of praying. So we're going to look at our passage this morning, Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. We're going to try to show or try to see a corrupt tendency that we have in praying and then the right way to really pray. So we're going to look at this in two main points. If you're taking notes, which I encourage you to do, the first point is this. We should try not to manipulate God. Let's look at what he says in verse 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse verse. Uh, Uh, What is it? Matthew chapter 6. I don't even know my own text. Verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. When you pray is a phrase that our Lord has used three times now in this chapter. Now he didn't say, now you ready? Listen. He didn't say, if you pray... He said, when you pray, you see the thought of a non-praying child of God. Friends, listen, it's an aberration. Children of God should be praying children of God. J.I. Packer says this, he says, God made us to pray. And prayer, that prayer is not the easiest, but it's the most natural activity in which we ever engage. And that prayer is the measure of us all in God's sight. He says, God's people ought to be praying people. It's natural. Because all people are created. Did you know this? All people, whether you come to church or not, even if you're in Christ or not, all people, because they are image bearers, are created to live in communion with our Maker. And prayer, friends, is that primary Mean. So when we pray, Jesus tells us what not to do. He says this, look at your verse 7, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Now let me give you a little secret inside information. Heap up empty phrases, four English words, all to translate one little Greek word. Whenever you find a lot of English trying to translate a little Greek, 
you know it's a really hard word to translate. It's the only time in the entire New Testament that this Greek word occurs. In fact, listen, this is how hard this is. It's the only time in ancient literature that this word occurs. Some have thought it originated from Bassus, who was a king of Cyrene. Herodotus says this. Uh, this king of Cyrene, Bassus, is said to have had a stuttering problem. Others think that a poet named Bassus originated this word. He was famous for long, tedious, lengthy, wordy prayers. But William Tyndall was the first translator to choose the word babble as an equivalent word for it. The word, here's what it means. The word describes any and every prayer, which is all words and no meaning. All lips and no mind, all talk and no heart. It describes the type of prayer that is just a flood of mechanical and mindless words. You want to know what Jesus means when he says, do not heap up empty phrases? I'm telling you what it means. It's mindless, mechanical speaking. It's the kind of praying that is done mindlessly or more out of thoughtless compulsion than an intimate, familiar relationship. By the way, did you ever go on a date where you really didn't care about that person? You just wanted to go on a date? And the entire evening was basically meaningless. You better not be married, by the way, in answering this question. You're in big trouble. It's those meaningless times. You really have no plans. You really have no desire to be there. You're just doing something almost out of compulsion. It characterized the way that the Gentiles prayed, this heaping up of empty phrases. And by the way, it can still be seen today. How? How about Christian science? Christian science... Prayer is seen as a power that can heal the distorted illusions of this world and bring people into a clearer focus of the spiritual creation. How about Muslims? Muslims face Mecca five times a day. They pray a brief ritualistic prayer. They also have many different supplications. They have to be recited at various precise times. And during these prayers, their body positions, they must be adhered to perfectly their enunciations the um, the pronunciations they, they must be rendered in specific detail or listen it will render their prayers invalid that's why if you get on the internet and you type in muslim praying learning how to how a muslim prays you're going to see they learn the ritualistic forms of pronunciation of these prayers or else their prayers are valid how about the baha'i faith Adherence to this also face a certain direction when they say they're daily obligatory, obligatory prayers. How about Tibetan Buddhists? They utilize these prayer wheels. And these prayer wheels contain around them the teachings of Buddha called the mantras. And these wheels, they must be held straight. And they must be spun clockwise. And their mantras must be sung, be, uh, sung or said before and after turning the wheel. And if they don't, then no merit will be incurred by the wheel's use. In fact, turning the wheel to a Buddhist brings a person, quote, incredible purification and unbelievable merit and sends that prayer to its God. I could go down the list, Hindus. I could even keep going down the list and see more and more ways that people pray. We could come back to Christianity. 
But the point is that these are just a sampling of the ways that religions utilize and encourage prayers. Now, many, now, you might think, wow, that's really interesting information about those other religions. How about Christianity? Many Christians, too, have become rote in their praying. See if this isn't you. They tell God wonderful things about Him before they begin to ask Him for the things that they want. I need to adore God. Remember the Acts? And then I have to confess my sins, and then I'm, I need to thank Him, and only after adoration and confession and thanking him can i supplicate or ask him for things if i follow this formula then i have the best chance of having my prayers answered now friends understand what i'm saying that particular a c t s form of prayer it's not wrong it's not bad but listen the subtle thinking that can be behind it is that if it's not said in order that God will not answer my prayers. This is what Jesus is pointing out. Do you remember from last week that he taught us that hypocrisy in prayer is a sin to be avoided? Hypocrisy, friends, it's all about self-love. It's all about self-adoration. Hypocrisy is all about self-worship. Hypocrites love to be seen by men. They love their image. They enjoy, they crave, they need to be honored or thought highly of. You see, the hypocrite's obsessed with his image. He's obsessed with the perception of others. He's obsessed with his reputation as a godly person. You see, hypocrisy misuses prayer. It diverts glory from God to ourselves. And that's what we talked about last week. That was in verses 5 and 6. But here in verses 7 and 8, Jesus reveals a second way that we tend to distort prayer. You see, prayer was often a religious attempt to selfishly get God to do what we want Him to do. It became a cosmic tool of manipulation. Look what Jesus says, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. A long prayer, a lengthy prayer, the right words to say, the right time to say it in front of the right people is going to move God to hear my prayer. See, the Jews had picked up from the Gentiles the practice of long, wordy prayers. But not only that, if the correct formula in prayer was used and they said the necessary things, then their prayer was going to be answered. You see, long, wordy, formularic praying was commonplace by the time of Christ. Parents, have you ever had your children come to you when they want something and they first explain why you are God's gift to the betterment of their lives? Accolades, compliments, extra chores around the house. You know, we have a child in our family. I won't mention the name of this child. It's not Andrew and it's not any of the boys. It's the one that's ducking down in the pew right now who has been doing more chores than I've ever seen a human being possibly do. All because this person wants a Nintendo DS, the tool of Satan. It's not going to happen, but we appreciate her cleanliness. We see the Gentiles, friends, even or the Jews, rather, even have a saying. Here's what their saying was. This was commonplace in the time of Christ. 
He who multiplies prayer must be heard. Did you hear that? He who multiplies prayer must be heard. They thought, the longer the prayer, the more words I use, the more God's going to hear me. See, the Gentiles thought that the more words they used and the longer they prayed, the more likely they would be heard as well. How do I know this? Pastor Tim, how do you know these things? Friends, the Word of God tells us. Look in Acts chapter 19, verse 34. It's on the screen behind me, I think. When the mob of Ephesus rioted against the Apostle Paul, here's what they did. For about two hours, the Bible says, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You see, they did this for two hours, chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Because the longer you pray, the more formulaically you pray, the more wordy you are, then the greater your chances of being heard. See, what Jesus condemns in our passage, friends, it's not repetition. By the way, have you ever broken down that word repetition? You get re-petition. It's persistent praying. Jesus holds up persistent praying. Luke chapter 11, 9, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. But listen to this. You ready? Ask, seek, knock. All three of them are in the Greek tense that means continuous, repeated action. See, Jesus says, repetition, knock, ask, seek. God wants that. It's not repetition in prayer that's the problem here. It's empty, listen, it's empty, meaningless repetition, which thinks that if you perform it correctly, it will motivate a divine granting of the requests. See, communion with God is not the chief goal of this type of praying. It's receiving your favorable answer. This is manipulation. And Jesus teaches that reciting mechanical, empty phrases and prayer, friends, listen, it's not going to influence God. That kind of prayer is not motivated by love. It's not spurned on, spurred on by relationship. It springs from a desire to manipulate God, that's just point number one. But you know what? Verse 8 is really cool. Here's what Jesus does. I pointed it out last week. All through this Sermon on the Mount, he keeps teaching in contrast. It's almost like he has a coin, and he says, here's what you ought not to do. And then he flips it over and says, but here is the right way to do it. Here's what I want you to do. Look what he says in verse 8. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Point number two is we should trust. We should trust in our heavenly father. He tells us not to be like those Gentiles. Who were those Gentiles? What were they doing? They were trying to to manipulate their gods through long, religious, empty praying. He says, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Friends, this is the seventh time in this three-chapter sermon that Jesus has called God Father, guess what? He's going to do it nine more times before it's over. Sixteen times he calls God Father. I think he's trying to communicate something. And we're going to look at it more deeply next week. But this little phrase of three words, your Father knows, is powerful. And I want to unpack it. I want to show you two truths that can explode your prayer life to intimate proportion. Here we go. Number one. I really want you to listen. Our Father 
Take that word Father. I want you to bracket it in. I want you to underline it. Italicize it. Bold it. Under, do whatever you got to do. Focus on that word Father. Our Father knows what we need. We do not need to try and persuade Him. He's our Father. He cares for us as sons and daughters. Now listen. Because how many Christians I've talked to, I cannot even remember, know that God is the Heavenly Father to the church. That God cares for all believers. But when you bring God's love and God's care and God's fatherhood down to the individual believer, then it begins to sputter out of their theology. Do you know that God is your Heavenly Father? Do you trust this about God? Do you know that God wants communion and intimacy with you? Friends, do you know that with you? And that He tremendously enjoys time spent with you through prayer. If you really trust God, then you will not try to manipulate Him when you pray. Manipulation is evidence that you have little or no trust in Him. Because trust is an essential core to intimacy. You know, I've never met a couple in all the years of counseling that who had learned how to develop deep intimacy and communion. I never met a couple like that that did not deeply trust one another. Prayer develops this trust, friends. And it leads us to the depths of intimacy with God. Prayer that tries to manipulate God, it comes from a heart that does not trust Him. It does not trust that He knows our needs. Now listen, a lot of us know that God knows your needs, but listen to the second part, and desires to meet them. Do you trust that kind of Father God who knows your needs and desires to meet them? Trustless people try to convince God to answer their prayers. Trustful people are content to hand over to Him their concerns, their needs, their wants, knowing that God already knows them and that He actively seeks to bless them with every good thing. I mean, how can you read later on in this chapter, verses 25 through 32, and not know that God loves and knows and desires to bless? Look what He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Look at the birds of the air. Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O sons, or O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek manipulatively after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Friends, prayer recognizes the value that we have in the eyes of our Father. We're more valuable than birds. We're more precious than flowers. We're His children. We're His image bearers, praying believers. They bear a strong family resemblance. Did you know that the Bible says 
that we are the apple of his eye? Did you even know what that means? The apple of the eye means that we are the very center of the eye, the pupil surrounded by the rest of the eye, protected by the eyelids. The Hebrews, the ancient Hebrews, created this expression to show how central in God's desire we are. It was a way of saying that which was regarded as most precious and central, held in His protective love. Did you know that the Word of God says that His children are His treasured possession? Did you know that you, believer in Christ, you're His treasured possession? Your Father looks at you like the very center of His eye, protectively coming around it, because you're valuable like His treasured possession. This is the way God the Father looks to us. We're precious to Him. We're treasured by Him. Do you have anything in your life that you treasure? Do you have anything in your life that you're most protective of because it's most precious to you? This, you, you multiply that to a cosmic perfect proportion and you've got God the Father's desire for us. Why would we doubt Him? Why would we need to persuade Him? His gifts and His grace, they don't have to be coaxed from Him. We do not pray to a God who has to be battered and pestered into answering our prayers. We come to a God whose desire, whose wish is to bless, is to give. Did you know that God's giving is an attribute of Him? You want to study a list of attributes of God? One of the lists is seldom makes the list. But it's one of the attributes of God, His giving nature. He loves to give. And we can come to Him with desires in our hearts and on our lips, a restful, contented declaration of your will be done. That's what Matthew 7 tells us. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in Heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Friends, our Heavenly Father needs not be persuaded in order to give what we need. But there's another truth, and this can explode your prayer life. It's in that phrase, your Father knows. Number two, our Father knows. I want you to take that word knows. I want you to underline it. I want you to bracket it. I want you to highlight it. I want it to be prominent in your mind. He knows what we need. We do not need to try and inform Him. A person prays, said Augustine, that he himself, listen, may be constructed, not that God would be instructed. Augustine said prayer is so that we, our hearts, could be constructed to be like Christ. Not that we would inform God of anything. He knows it. He sees us. He knows what we need. This is why John Calvin could write this. Believers, do not pray with a view of informing God about things unknown to Him or of of exciting Him to do His duty or of urging Him as though He were reluctant. They pray, believers pray, that they may arouse themselves to seek Him. That they may relieve themselves of their anxieties by pouring them into His bosom in a word. Why do we pray? That they may declare that from Him alone they hope and expect both for themselves and for others all 
good things. Friends, our loving, watching, heavenly Father already knows and already sees our needs. So why pray? I've been asked that question so many times. We're going to try to answer that throughout this series. But here we know not to inform Him. We don't pray to give God information that somehow He lacked. As if He doesn't know, but we pray, here it is, to rest in His perfect knowledge of our needs. If He's our Father, and we're the apple, the, the, the apple of His eye, the very center of His gaze, and if He's our Father, and we're His treasured possession, and He knows you need something, and He holds the cattle on a thousand hills, and He has all might in His hands, He will give because He desires. He loves to give in His time. We ask God. We come to Him with requests, but now it's out of heart because we've been in prayer with Him that are no longer grasping, no longer restless, no longer demanding prayers. Friends, God is neither ignorant that we must inform Him of what, he need, of what we need, nor is He stingy that we must persuade Him to act. Though, you've got to listen to this. Those who doubt these attributes of God, those who doubt that He's our Heavenly Father, those who doubt that He loves to give, those who doubt that He knows all things, they always, without fail, will resort to mechanical, repetitious, manipulative praying. God, you're not answering my prayers. You must not, I must not be ardent enough. I must not be trying enough. I must not have the right formula. What do I have to do to get you to listen to me? Friend, you've forgotten who God is at that point. He's your heavenly Father. And He loves to give. Did you know that our country's national parks receive 250 million visitors a year? And one year they actually did a study. They wanted to find out how long does each average visitor stay in the park system in their visit. The answer was four and a half hours, less than an average work day, spent going through Yosemite, gazing at the wondrous sights of Sequoia, driving or walking throughout Yellowstone, or looking at Glacier National Park, all those wonders, all of that beauty seen in a rushed, hurried, busy glance rather than a slow, long gaze. Friends, does that describe your prayer life? Remember, God already knows you're not going to inform him, him of anything. Is that the way you pray a mad dash into and out of prayer? Here's what I'm learning. The more I pray, the more I am drawn into the wonder and the beauty of my relationship that I have with my Heavenly Father. When I rise from those meaningful times of intimate, deep prayer, I wonder, why don't I spend more times like this? My soul delights in communion with God. Haven't you discovered that? I encourage you today to slow down and enjoy prayer. 
Not with meaningless, long, repetitious, formulaic emptiness, but with trusting assurance that your heavenly Father delights in you. You are the apple of His eye. You are His treasured possession. He knows everything you need. And He's waiting for you to come. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Lord, we are just in the introduction. Lord, the verses that lead up to Your teaching and prayer. God, I cannot wait. I'm excited about getting into the meat of this text next week. Lord, where we can slow down and take a long look at what You say. Lord, I pray that You would teach us. I pray that You would draw us into Your presence. Lord, that we would long to be with You. That our souls, Lord, would yearn to spend time alone with You. And Lord, that You would construct us and that You would move us away from mechanical, repetitious, formula prayers, Lord, in and out in a mad dash. But Father, that we would linger long in Your presence and enjoy the sweetness of intimacy with You. That's what You have promised to us. And Lord, that is ours by right. We'll see it next week. Lord, help us become a people of prayer. And in Jesus' name, amen.